0: Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. 15
1: seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts.
0: Astronauts report, it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast about astronomy and everything astronomical, which is what astronomy is all about, effectively. And joining me as always, uh, astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We do space as
1: well. Yeah, yeah, yes. (laughs) Space and astronomy. Space and astronomy. And and all things in between. And it's nice to see you. Yeah, that's right. It's great to see you too. In person, face to face. we sweat here in the heat of (laughs) Davo. Yes, yes. Um,
0: And apologies if you hear any background noise. It's the air conditioner working overtime to try and um, dwell the the temperatures that are exceeding 40 degrees Celsius in my part of the world at the moment. And uh, that's when Fred decided to visit. So (laughs) (laughs) here we are. And... um, Uh, You might hear some cicadas as well because they're having a busy time of it. Now, Fred, today we're going to be looking uh, at Jupiter from a couple of angles. Uh, There's been an amazing picture taken by the Juno spacecraft, which is orbiting Jupiter, Jupiter, and it's just a staggering photograph. Uh, Also, uh, they appear to have created metallic hydrogen, and that could answer a few questions about Jupiter as well. So we'll investigate that. Uh, Some people might have um, caught something online recently regarding uh, Apollo one. It's 50 years since that uh, terrible disaster with the fire in the capsule. Uh, And we'll talk about um, that situation and and a rather um, unfortunate coincidence that exists within the realms of NASA. And we'll finish off today looking at four planets orbiting a star. And when I say looking at, we are actually able to look at them. Uh, which is uh, showing how far advanced astronomy and, uh, and the like has, has come in recent years. First up, Fred, Jupiter, as seen from the Juno probe,
1: and the photographs are amazing. Aren't they just? Uh, this is what we've been looking forward to um, in the, I guess it's now six months since uh, Juno went into orbit around Jupiter, rendezvoused with Jupiter at the beginning of July last year, after a something like seven-year journey, I think. Uh, And uh, Juno's job is really not so much to look at the satellites of Jupiter, which are interesting in their own right, but to study the planet's atmosphere and more especially to try and Deduce what is underneath the planet 's atmosphere mm. because Jupiter, like all four of the gas giants in our solar system, does not exhibit a solid surface when you look at Jupiter what you 're seeing is the top of the cloud uh, cloud layers that uh, occupy the outer parts of jupiter 's atmosphere. If you fell into Jupiter, what would happen is that the the gas pressure would simply get higher and higher and higher with apparently no solid surface. However, we might come back to that in a minute. The thing about Jupiter uh, though, and and Juno is that, um, well, Jupiter has, and this too will play into our discussion, (laughs) uh, Jupiter has the strongest magnetic field of any planet, incredibly strong, thousands of times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that the planet has these radiation belts around it, which are full of highly energized uh, subatomic particles, and to fly a spacecraft through those is kind of suicidal because you 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 destroy the electronics of the spacecraft by this bombardment of radiation which just ignores metal and things like that and just yeah. zaps whatever is there so what the scientists have done is put juno into uh, this series of orbits that are really clever because they they loop around uh, jupiter's north and south poles Uh, And it's a very elongated orbit. So the spacecraft spends most of its time way outside the radiation belts, but then sneaks inside them Mm. uh, over the poles, going in uh, on on the North Pole and out the South Pole. I think that's the way around it is. Um, And and in doing that can get really close to the top of these cloud layers that Jupiter exhibits. And that's what we've seen with the latest images. And it's a surreal picture. As you said a couple of minutes ago to me before we went on air, if you didn't know that that was Jupiter, you'd wonder where in the solar system it was. If you did ask somebody
0: what they were looking at, they would probably tell you I'm looking at um, close-up
1: photographs of the Middle East Maybe because it just looks like desert landscape. It does look like a desert landscape, that's Mm. right, but there are these whirls and eddies Uh, The the way the clouds sort of interact with each other, you can see structures where, you know, clouds branch outwards. It's nothing like the this simple pattern of cloud belts that we see when we look from the Earth through a telescope at Jupiter. Yes. This is real detail, and actually the, the image that we're looking at is of Jupiter's northern hemisphere, but it does just catch a feature called the little red spot. It's uh, because it's
0: got the big red spot, the, which has been the, that's right, which swirling is away for, for 300 years. Yes. Yeah.
1: The little red spot I think is more recent and, and is smaller mm. uh, than the what's called the great red spot, but that is uh, captured in beautiful detail. Uh, in the latest images. What fascinates me is uh,
0: that a planet like this can have storm activity that lasts hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, we, we think in terms of what happens on Earth. And yeah. if a storm lasts a week, we're going, oh, wow, that's, you know. That's bad news. That's hundreds of years up there. Yeah. But the mathematics required to do what Juno's doing just is beyond my scope
1: of comprehension. It's, uh, it is. It's very impressive. And mm-hmm. of course, a lot of the hard work, the grunt work, is all done by computers. But um, it it's, remains true that space navigation, getting things into the right place in space, is relatively straightforward because um, uh, objects moving in space behave in a very predictable way because they're all dictated by the pull of gravity mostly the sun's gravity but jupiter's gravity as well in this case and once you've solved the equations of the gravitational pull uh, and you you've got an initial direction and, velo- and speed for a spacecraft then you can work out where it's going to be with incredible precision mm. so space navigation is is a tractable problem on the other hand it, it, it the, uh, the, this particular mission is beset with difficulties like the fact that these radiation belts have um, an energy of their own, so they tend to push uh, with a radiation pressure on the spacecraft. the sun's radiation pressure is also something to take into account, which is not accounted for in gravity, so there are very careful corrections that need to be made, and look, you have to hand it to NASA. nobody can do it like NASA can yeah. in I terms mean, of
0: you generally hear about the the problems yeah. and the mistakes and yeah. the disasters but yeah. uh, they just plod along and their successes far outweigh they're, they're their failures.
1: stunning that's right i mean i've been i've been going on for the last 12 years about how wonderful cassini is and cassini is yes. a nasa spacecraft in orbit around saturn uh, it's also european space agency and the italian space agency they are the three organizations that that do it but cassini is just staggering in what it's achieved mm. it's it's doubled our knowledge of the outer solar system at least, probably more like trebled
0: it. And you can go back further than that and and look at uh, the Voyager probes. What, That's an, right. what an amazing back in achievement. in the 70s. And ongoing. ongoing. I mean, they're yeah. still going.
1: Still talking to us, yeah. yeah.
0: I saw a, uh, an article the other day just by the by that said how far away uh, Voyager 1 was. Yes. And I, I think it was like point something of a light year. And I thought... <laughs> Oh, that's yeah, a letdown.
1: <laughs> it's, it's actually, I think it's about twenty light hours or something twenty light like that. hours or something. Yeah, like that. but that's a long way. Yes, uh, you yes. know, just um, doesn't sound much when no, you put it in it, that it does, perspective. It doesn't. Mm. Uh, the, the yes, the uh, Voyager One is the most distant human-made object and will almost certainly go on forever. Yeah, um, which is you know, in itself, a staggering thought. Unless, of
0: course, it gets caught up in something one uh, day.
1: Yeah, yeah. Long past. It H- hits another solar system's Jupiter. Yeah,
0: maybe, maybe. So
1: just going back to what we were saying a minute ago about this magnetic field, mm. um, the thing about the magnetic field of a planet like the Earth is that we believe, uh, with good reason, that it's generated by the fact that the Earth has a core, a molten core made of iron. So the Earth's iron core... Actually, it's both solid and liquid. The, the central part is solid, and then there's a liquid iron core around it. And it's the interaction of those together, these two uh, big blobs of metal, um, that be- behave like kind of like a dynamo and generate the Earth's magnetic field. Mm. Um, Jupiter has a magnetic field much stronger than the Earth's. We know Jupiter is made mostly of hydrogen. It's the same stuff that stars are made of. So for many, many years, there's been a speculation that at the centre of Jupiter, the pressures uh, are so high uh, from this bulk of gas around it that the hydrogen has been compressed into a metallic form which would allow it to conduct electricity. And and that's a theory. And it's a theory, that's right. But it's been our best theory yet uh, for why Jupiter has this strong magnetic field. The, The downside of it is nobody knew whether metallic hydrogen Existed, does or was it even possible, or was it even possible until now? Yes, <laughs> and that's um, the other part of this story. Um, scientists at Harvard University, what they've done is um, they've taken a, a small blob of hydrogen and and compressed it to uh, actually is uh, was it five hundred gigapascals? I think is the <laughs> is the pressure it's been put under, which is a very high pressure indeed. Mm. To see what happens, and we now have some evidence that uh, it does turn into a metal um, wow. because the uh, the images that this group has shared of the blob of hydrogen shows uh, first of all that it's transparent then it goes black but then as the pressure increases it becomes reflective uh, it's shiny so you've got a tiny blob of hydrogen that has a surface like a metal. Mm. Um, whilst it's not yet been demonstrated beyond uh, all you know all doubt that this is metallic hydrogen, it seems like it's the first step uh, and fulfills a quest that's been going on. Well, that some people say it's been going on for eighty years mm. to produce this new material, and yeah. it may be something that's useful to us. Well, a wonder material.
0: Yes, indeed. And of course, those sorts of pressures would not be. And coming up and that's right
1: at, at the center of Jupiter because there's so much gas you know above uh, above the, the, the central core so yeah, maybe Jupiter does have a core of metallic hydrogen mm. maybe it does exist maybe one day we'll be able to make it into in quantities that are actually um you know give it new properties things that um we we haven't been able to do until now people are suggesting that metallic hydrogen might be the ultimate rocket fuel for example wow. <laughs> It's exciting. Yeah. And one final word on Juno. Um, what will its
0: ultimate fate be? And I'm going to hazard a guess that they're going to crash the thing into Jupiter.
1: You're right on the money. <laughs> <laughs> it will. And um, I think it's, uh, it's only a couple of years down the track. It's mm. a fairly limited length of time, the, the project. Um, yes, that's a standard process where you have a spacecraft that has come from the Earth, and is in orbit uh, around a body that has satellites of its own, which may, just may, have their own living organisms on them. So um, Europa, for example, one of Jupiter's uh, four big satellites, Europa is one of the uh, foremost places in the solar system where we think life might exist because it's got this ocean of liquid water underneath a thick layer of ice. If you crash um, Juno onto that surface, and Juno's carrying earthly microbes; they could conceivably find their way into the Juno, the um, the European environment, and disrupt what would otherwise be a, a pristine ecosystem. Yeah. So um, that's why the spacecraft. And indeed, the same will happen to Cassini. September fifteenth, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Cassini is going to crash into Saturn. Very
0: good. Well. I suppose that's very, good. It, it's got to very do something. good. Yeah,
1: it's very good in the sense that it, it, it gets rid of any doubt about you know leaving our traces all over the solar system. Mm, all right. So more to come from uh, from Juno. Absolutely. Uh, indeed, and we'll
0: talk about that in um, days and weeks and years to come, I hope. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Roger, your lot are here also space nuts. Now, Fred, um, it's 50 years since we heard of the, um, speaking of NASA disasters, uh, the Apollo 1 capsule fire, which uh, took the lives of uh, three astronauts, Grissom White and Chaffee. And, and I, it brings me back to my childhood because as a kid, my, my brother and I just were captivated by the Apollo missions. We were, we were sent home from school to watch Apollo 11. And we um, we just Took it all in yeah. as, it, as it came. And and I, I have a vague memory of Apollo 1. Um, but it was a poster that we had on my brother's bedroom wall that, that really sticks in my memory because it was up until that moment all the astronauts that had ever had anything okay. to do with space mm-hmm. missions from the United States. And I always wondered about the three men that were sort of portrayed standing at the back and that's who they were.
1: There you go. Yeah. Mm. Um I was a bit older than you when all this was happening. In fact it was at uni uh, ah. when uh, when this event took place. So um Apollo 1 was the first uh, was intended to be the first mission testing out the new Apollo capsule and uh, spacecraft uh, before the sequence of Apollo missions that culminated in astronauts landing on the moon in July 1969 in Apollo 11. Mm. Uh, but yes, like you, I followed this assiduously, and just seeing those names again, Grissom, White and Chaffee, it kind of it, it, it really resonates. These are names that were really familiar at that, that time because you know they'd all flown in space before, I think two of them had. Um, but they were yes, they were uh, victims of uh, an accidental sequence of events which essentially caused the inside of the capsule to catch fire. Mm. And the problem was that NASA, at that time, were uh, putting an all-oxygen atmosphere into their capsules. And oxygen is incredibly reactive, as you know. Uh, You light something in an oxygen atmosphere and away it goes. And that's what happened, and the guys could not get out. They were overcome. By fumes very quickly. It was not um, actually on the launch pad. It was a, a test before the before the actual launch of Apollo One. Um, they perished. Uh, that was on the twenty seventh of January, uh, nineteen sixty six, and the world stopped really because yeah. um, um, Apollo had been uh, the whole American space mission had seemed on track for a moon landing within a very short time, uh, and this looked like. Uh, not curtains for the project, but looked like a huge potential delay. Yeah. Um, it did cause a delay. There were lots of things were redesigned, and it's probably because these three men lost their lives that the Apollo missions generally were so safe. There was no other loss of life in Apollo uh, after that. There
0: was a close call. There was a
1: close call, that's Apollo right, 13. Actually, and, Apollo 13 the, and they indeed. did
0: actually bring up the Apollo 1 Issue in the, in the movie,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, just as a point to, 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 to yes, demonstrate so, safety, yeah. But um, you know that the, so they, they didn't lose their lives in vain. The the Apollo uh, project was incredibly successful following the the redesign of the of the spacecraft. Mm. Um, so uh, what NASA has done is marked uh, this uh, rather sad 50th anniversary by uh, actually exhibiting for the first time the charred escape hatch of Apollo 1 at the Kennedy Space Center. So they've kept it all this time? Oh, Everything's been kept Uh, actually that's not quite true, one thing that got wiped were the tapes of the Apollo landing but everything else has been kept Um, everything that came back anyway, Mm. Uh, one or two of the odds and ends, the memorabilia of Apollo are actually sitting on the moon so there's not much you can do about that, but yes this this charred hatchway door is now uh, on display Kennedy space Center it's in a rather elegantly designed uh, display um, case with the words "Let us go to the moon uh, above it very very evocative. Um, what s- surprised me even though I knew these dates, Andrew, uh, but when I realized that the other two big uh, disasters effectively that uh, NASA has suffered, which were the uh, the Challenger and Columbia. Uh, accidents, Mm. Challenger, the space shuttle, both of them were space shuttles, each carrying a crew of seven, all of whom were lost. Um, Those two accidents were within days of the 26th of January, so 27th of January, uh, but in different years. January 28th, 1986 was the Challenger disaster. So a day later on the calendar. That's right. February 1st, 2003, uh, the Columbia disaster. Isn't it astonishing that it would be so close together? And and unreal, all of them utter milestones in the the space, um, you know, the space program. Mm. Uh, And in fact, um, representing, I think, the total, the sum total, of lives that NASA have lost in space.
0: Uh, and oh, I hate to say it, but probably won't be the last as we continue to venture out. Um, but the, the more we
1: learn and the more technology advances, yeah, the less the likelihood. That's right. And in fact, we're now in a... In an era where risk to human life uh, is taken much more seriously. I mean, Mm. it was taken seriously back in those days, but we're a lot more risk averse than we were back in the 1960s, even the 80s, actually, in early 2000s. So um, um, the hope is that spaceflight will become. Safer, and will eventually, and because of the commercial uses of spaceflight for tourism things, will eventually be similar to what aviation is today, with very low uh, fatalities, very Mm. low indeed.
0: Well, I'm, I'm still looking forward to suborbital commercial flights, so I can get to. You know, the US or Europe in a few hours instead of a few yeah. days.
1: Yeah, you might need the fare, though.
0: That's the trouble. That's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll watch with interest. But uh, one thing I want to mention is if you ever get a chance to go to NASA mm. uh, in Florida and, and have a look at, around at the tourist um, facilities there, they are amazing. I did it a few years ago. And just walking into that massive hangar that's been turned into a museum with a saturn V rocket hanging from the ceiling yeah. <laughs> yeah. it it blows your mind yeah. you just look at that thing and go how could they ever get that off the ground it is enormous
1: they got I mean, it-, it looks big on tv but when you walk under it you yeah, go it would be oh, my this this God. Uh, those those five engines yeah uh, at the base and um, so when um, when a saturn V um was launched those engines consumed thirteen tons of fuel per second.
0: <laughs> I'm not surprised. You could live in
1: them. Yeah, you could. Yeah, individually, yeah. they yeah. just
0: yeah. And and like they do have a um, an Apollo capsule displayed there. Um, they have Neil Armstrong's um, spacesuit. Space yeah, it's great. Uh, stuff. And and just so much more that I probably you know I just can't remember at the moment. But I I, I was like a kid in a lolly shop. Yeah. I just could not <laughs> see enough. Uh, And you can do a a space shuttle launch simulator, which is a lot of fun. Um, But, yeah, well worth a visit. Sounds great. Mm. And now this new exhibit, just so we remember that some people do pay a high price.
1: They do. That's right.
0: You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson.
1: Three, two, one. Space Nuts.
0: Now, finally, Fred, we're going to look, and I mean look, at four planets orbiting a star... 129 light years away. Now, up until now, our discovery of exoplanets has been, I suppose, more mathematical than it has been
1: um, actual observation. But that's changing. It is. And and it's as the technology improves, Andrew. So you're quite right. Um, the first uh, recorded uh, observation of, a, of an exoplanet was back in 1995 of uh, a planet orbiting a star called 51 Pegasi, which is very famous in the world of planetary astronomy because Mm. that was the first time a planet had been detected. And it was detected by uh, looking at the wobble in the movement of the parent star. As as a planet goes around the parent star, it pulls the parent star to one side and and the other. And we can detect that change in speed. We now know of something like 3,000 planets orbiting other stars, many of which have been discovered by the same method. But some have been discovered by what's called the transit method, where you watch the light of a star dim slightly as a planet passes in front of it. Yep. But all of that, exactly as you've said, is highly mathematical. It all involves indirect observations. You're inferring the presence of a planet from the observations that you can make. There are just a few cases that have been, have been made uh, in the last... Eight or nine years where you can actually spot the planet directly, and the the problem in doing that is that if you have say a planet like the Earth going around a star like the sun, what you 've got is this object that's shining by the reflected light of the sun um, it's literally billions of times fainter than the sun is, probably tens of billions of times fainter. And yet, seen from a distance, it's right next to the mm. parent star. And so that's why it's been so hard to detect uh, planets directly. But with the right kind of equipment and a planet that's far enough away from its parent star, what you can do is blot out uh, the light of the parent star. You can do it from places where the atmosphere is crystal clear. You couldn't do it from... Sydney or Dubbo, places like that. It's got to be on top of a mountain with uh, total air clarity. Uh, You use what's called a coronagraph, which is an instrument that blots out the light of the star itself and lets you look in the outer regions. And a few planets have been detected in doing that. Why is this a new story now? Because for the first time, we've got an absolutely stunning movie uh, that's been made over a period of about uh, seven years of this succession of four planets in orbit around a star with the elegant name of HR 8799, 129 light years away, as you've said. It's a young star. It's only about 10 uh, million years old. So it's a a, a young star. It's got a a planetary system. These are young planets. Um, Very interesting to see that their orbits are actually quite a lot bigger than the orbits of the planets that we know in the solar system. Mm -hmm. So the nearest one... Uh, takes about forty years to go around uh, its parent star. I
0: was going to ask you about that because you said this this is a seven-year that's right um, movie piece of movie, yeah. And yet that that planet is only moving what one eighth of the way around that, the. That's
1: correct. That's correct. So that's the inner no, that's one. That's too much. I'm uh, just doing the maths. Yeah, but no, you're on the money there. So you know, forty years is its is its orbital period. Mm. Um, but the the furthest one uh, is taking four hundred years to go around its parent star. Yeah. So that's you know that's comparable with um, with Pluto. What's that? Two hundred and forty-seven, if I remember right, the years. I'll take
0: your word for yeah, it. Right, something like that.
1: <laughs> um, we we have a planetary system here that's showing us. I, I mean, part of the reason why we can do this is that this the, the the orbital plane, if you like, the plane in which these planets orbit, is face on to us. So we see them in their effectively circular paths. As time goes on, and particularly as technology improves. This video will be updated, and eventually, we'll—you know—four hundred years' time, we'll see them going all Do the way a full lap. Probably, plus many, many more planets. Yeah. Um, but this is—it's staggering, really, to see how. Far this kind of study has progressed in the in the you know the only 22 years since the very first one was discovered. Mm. And
0: if anyone wants to see that that movie, it's probably easy to find online. It's um, it, and it's worth having a quick look at it because uh, even though it only lasts a few seconds our time, mm. you're actually looking at many years of uh, of, uh, of, of data, activity. Yeah. Right. yeah.
1: Um, these these observations have been made with the keck uh, observatory in hawaii which is one of the world's biggest mm. uh, telescopes they have two 10 meter telescopes and can do all kinds of things fascinating yeah <laughs> and and look it's another step forward
0: in in studying exoplanets and brings us a little closer to analyzing them and maybe finding those telltale signs yeah. of vegetation, or right. or, the, the or something else, the biomarkers exactly. Yeah. Mm. Fred, as yeah. always, fascinating and enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's a
1: great pleasure, Andrew,
0: good and it's good to, to see you. you. Yeah, yeah, we, we don't to get to see each <laughs> other very often, but um, we'll right. be back again. You know, in a yeah, week or so. A week or so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thank you for uh, listening. We we really do love your feedback as well. So um, you know, if you see us say hello. Uh, You can certainly communicate via Facebook and keep sending those questions and comments in because we do enjoy uh, answering them when we get around to it, <laughs> but we, we'll we'll keep an eye out for them and um, we do value your feedback. And, of course, uh, don't forget uh, our sister podcast, Space Time. You can uh, listen to that online as well. Until next week, thanks for listening to Space Nuts. Space
1: Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been
1: another quality podcast production
0: from com. I'm just doing a test to see if this is recording. Testing one, two, three, and I can see a waveform. What about you, Fred? Well, I have
1: my own waveform. You know, I carry yeah. it with me everywhere I go. It's certainly not on your head. <laughs> 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 Thank you, and good night. <laughs> Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld.
0: Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family.